0: Is there a doctor in the house? Well, that might be uncertain. Hi, I'm George Boldarchy, and this is Cityscape. According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, the U.S. will face a significant shortage of doctors in the next decade, many of them primary care physicians. In the studio with me now is Neil Simon. He's the president and co-founder of the American University of Antigua College of Medicine. Neil has made it his mission to help increase the supply of primary care doctors and break down the barriers that prevent underrepresented minorities from pursuing a career in medicine. Neil, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So, the Association of American Medical Colleges has projected that the U.S. could lose as many as 100,000 doctors by the year 2025, many of them primary care physicians. What's the problem?
1: Well, that's correct. There, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that most U.S. medical school graduates do not go into primary care fields. Why? Because there can be numerous reasons. It may be that their interests are different, maybe that they that specialty fields pay more money, um, and there may be that the universities uh, encourage their students to go into more of the super specialties. It also is a problem because U.S. medical schools do not train enough physicians. The AAMC actually in their latest projections was there may be a shortage of 120,000 physicians by the year 2030. And if you only have in AAMC schools... 22,000 first-year places, you can't make up that difference. Um, It's both a combination of where U.S. medical schools have interests as well as the number of available spaces in U.S. medical schools.
0: I would think that retirements are also a factor here.
1: The number of doctors over 65 years of age, as a percentage of doctors, is increasing every year. So you have more and more doctors retiring and not enough doctors coming on to replace them especially when you talk about family physicians. In the olden days, there were a lot more family physicians, general practitioners. You don't see people going into those fields as often. Anymore. In the
0: olden days, we had house calls.
1: That's right. There were actually house calls, and you could actually see a doctor within a week or so.
0: What area of the country or what areas of the country would you say are most impacted by this shortage of primary care physicians?
1: Well, there are a number. It's it's hard to do that by by geographic area because there are two areas that have the largest problem one is rural areas and in fact one of the big issues that uh, the state of Alabama which has been in the news a lot lately is facing is that they have rural hospitals closing and there are no doctors who will come into those areas so now um, uh, a town of 40,000 people where there might have been a hospital that was 20 minutes away now they may have to travel two hours away to get to a hospital the other area where it's a problem is lower socioeconomic levels of urban areas don't have a lot of doctors. That takes place in California. It takes place right here in New York City where there are certain areas of the city where there are not enough physicians available in the community. So we're feeling that pinch right here in New York. You're feeling it. Everybody's feeling it. Um, if you try and call a doctor and schedule an appointment, you'll see it takes a while to get an appointment, even if it's an emergency. That's why people are using emergency rooms in hospitals more often than they need to. And we see a
0: lot of these urgent care
1: facilities pop up all over the place. That's correct. But you also have to staff those urgent care facilities with physicians and physician extenders, which they're not enough of.
0: How are foreign medical graduates helping to fill this void in the United States?
1: let me give you an example. First of all, when we talk about foreign medical graduates, we're talking about primarily, in the case of American University of Antigua, U.S. citizens who are graduates of international medical schools. About 72% of our graduates go into primary care fields. So we're, one, helping to deal with the shortage of primary care physicians uh, by having such a high percentage of our graduates uh, going into primary care. And secondly, uh, because we have a very diverse student population, our graduates also go into communities where there's an extreme shortage of physicians. So international graduates from American University of Antigua are dealing with that shortage both in terms of creating a more diverse physician population, because we have a more diverse student population, and also because our student population tends to go into primary care fields.
0: So what are you doing differently than American schools to encourage
1: these students to go into primary care? Well, we look at an applicant... As a whole person, we just don't base an applicant's admissions decision based on GPA or on a score of a standardized test, which, by the way, the MCAT, which is the standardized test that is used now, there's been admissions by the American medical establishment that that test is culturally biased. It's interesting to note that the number of black African-American males in U.S. medical schools has gone down from about, somewhere under 800 to somewhere a little over 700 uh, through all 144 U.S. medical schools. And AAMC has done studies to find out the reasons for that. And they've talked about there not being enough mentors. They've talked about people don't know about opportunities in medicine. But what they don't address is what we believe is the culturally biased admissions process for students to get into U.S. medical schools. In what way is it culturally biased? Well, if you if if you look at um, only GPAs, grade point averages, and you look only at a test score on a test that admittedly has cultural biases in it, and that's your primary determination as to who's going to get into medical school, then in my view, that application process is culturally biased. And the numbers show that. If you look at... American University of Antigua, we have approximately 20% of our graduates are African American. Approximately 6% of U.S. medical school graduates are African American. The difference is the students who got accepted into AUA, while qualified, probably did not get into a U.S. medical school. So we've proven that students who they don't accept using their admissions process, when they're given a quality medical education, become physicians, and good physicians, and they deal with the areas in which there's the most need. How would you say increasing diversity in the medical field benefits communities here in the US? Well, I think there's a recognition that diversity benefits all communities. We have a diversified population in the United States. And you'll notice that in most U.S. medical schools, they try and deal with cultural diversity and have courses that try to address that. I like to say, not only do we have courses for that, but our students live it. Our students live diversity because we have such a diverse student population and we have such a diverse faculty. It prepares our graduates to provide quality medical care in a diverse country. Are your students traditional in the sense that they go to your university straight from college? N- no, we have, a, certainly we have a significant percentage of students who go straight from college, but we also have people who have been involved in medical, in the medical profession, but not as physicians, who then determine that what they really like to do is become physicians, but they see themselves as becoming physicians that are going to deal with patients when they first enter the healthcare system, in other words, in primary care. Are you attracting students from right here in the New York City area? We have quite a few students in from the New York City area. One of the things that's interesting about uh, medical education, which people don't realize, is that depending upon what state you live in, uh, your chances of getting into medical school can be significantly impacted. Let me give you an example. In New York State, of all the medical schools in New York State, about one-third of the students who matriculate are New York State residents. In Mississippi, of the 240 first-year medical school positions, something like 235 are taken by Mississippi residents. Hmm. So if you're a New York City a uh, New York State resident, excuse me, or a New York City resident, and you apply to a New York City, a New York State school, you have to, it's very, very competitive. If you apply to a Mississippi school as a New York State resident, you're probably not going to get in because they're only going to take students from Mississippi. So a student from Mississippi, for example, who might have a 3.4 GPA will get into medical school. A, a student, an applicant from New York State, who might have a 3.65 GPA or a 3.7 GPA may not get into a New York medical school, but also won't get into the Mississippi medical school. So, and that's true, uh, and it impacts people in states like New York or New Jersey where there's a high population, uh, I mean, a a significant uh, number of applicants to medical schools, but there are not as many medical school, there's not a proportionate number of state medical school places.
0: Where are your graduates primarily working here in the tri-state region?
1: Well, um, I can tell you that they work in in hospitals in Brooklyn, Manhattan, upstate New York, Kingston. Um, I can give you a whole list, Maimonides, um, Wyckoff, uh, Kingsbrook, Kingsborough, um, Beth Israel, uh, on and on and on. We have students in residencies in almost every state of the union, and but again, they tend to um, participate in residency training in in urban states like New York or in rural areas. It's interesting to note that in New York State, over 40% of the residents are international medical graduates. In the state of New Jersey, over 50% of residents are medical school graduates. And interestingly enough, where a graduate participates in residency training is the place where the graduate is most likely to practice medicine. Not the state, not where you go to medical school. So for example, the New York State medical schools, 65% of their graduates do not practice in New York State. So while we're supporting these medical schools and um, the state supports these medical schools, they're not producing doctors for New York State. Is that because there are no jobs here? Why is that? Oh, there? there are plenty of jobs, and there are plenty of opportunities in New York State. It's, um, I can't tell you what the reasons are. I've heard somebody say it's because our taxes are high. Hmm. But our taxes pay for the medical education. So it's, I, I, I can't tell you why individuals don't. I can only tell you that according to the AAMC, 65% of New York State medical school graduates do not practice in New York State.
0: Now, you said many of your students. Is it a majority that are U.S. born? Yes.
1: Um, When I get the percentage of where students are, I always come up with more than 100 percent, so I have to be careful. But about 85 percent of our students are um, U.S. citizens, and our our U.S. citizens and uh, residents are eligible for U.S. government student loans. About Ten to twelve percent are um, Canadian, and I'm going to go over a hundred percent again. But um, <laughs> and then we have a large percentage of, uh, maybe five percent of our students are uh, from the Caribbean region, and uh, we provide scholarships for many of those students. We have diversity scholarships. We have scholarships for um, students from the Caribbean region. and We have a New York State scholarship. We had over $13 million in scholarships um, that have gone to our AUA students.
0: Now, that being said, how hard is it for an individual who is not a U.S. citizen to come here and work as a primary care physician and to stay here as a primary care physician?
1: Well, uh, some of it depends upon where they obtain their medical education. So it is if you're not a U.S. citizen or a U.S. resident, um, you have a whole host of immigration issues that you have to go through. And you have to participate in residency training if you're not a U.S. citizen. Besides obtaining a residency position, the hospital must sponsor you for that position, and hospitals, hospitals, excuse me, are yet, uh, becoming more and more reluctant to do so. Um, why? Why? Because um, I think the present um, federal administration um, has uh, put in doubt how long a internationals graduate can stay in the United States, and whether or not there'll be continued restrictions on those graduates uh, no matter where they come from. So hospitals, uh, I think, are less likely to invest in sponsoring an international medical graduate who is not a U.S. citizen or resident.
0: What do you think about that, considering we're going to have this big void when it comes to having primary care physicians? Well,
1: I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a problem, and I think one of the reasons for that problem is people deal in silos. So whether or not, however you feel about immigration, do you take into consideration what impact it might have on health care? Do you take into consideration what impact it may have on other aspects of the economy? Do you take into consideration what impact it may have on research and development? Um, I don't know. So I think there's not an overall uh, view of immigration and what impact restricted immigration may have on the United States. Are your standards any different from that of a U.S.-based medical school? Our standards are different in the sense that we have different standards to get into the school. Our standards once you're in school, I do not believe are any different than a U.S. medical school. And the success of our graduates has shown that. Um, We had over 88% of our graduates obtained residency positions last year, uh, which is higher than some U.S. medical schools. And whenever there's been any attempt to evaluate internationally trained physicians as opposed to U.S.-trained physicians to see if there's a difference in quality, there's never been a study that has shown that there's any difference in quality. So I think that goes to the standards that we have as an educational institution to ensure that our graduates are successful and that they have the appropriate education to pass the necessary exams for licensure because whether we like it or not, there's a three-part examination process to get licensed in any state in the union. And our graduates, as well as U.S. Medical School grad- graduates, have to pass those same exams in order to obtain licensure.
0: What's the story behind the American University of Antigua College of Medicine?
1: What's the story behind it? Yeah. What are your humble beginnings? I was president of another international medical school called Ross University. In 2004, the government of Antigua uh, established a new hospital in Antigua, and they wanted to have a medical school um, associated with that hospital. They had asked me to come over and start a medical school, and I, together with a group of physicians who realized that there were issues in American medical education in the opportunities in medical uh, in u s medical education, and the need for diversity, decided we would establish a school um, in Antigua that would deal with those issues the diversity issue in both medical education and with graduates and to train more uh, primary care physicians. And as I'm sure you know, primary care is something that you go into after medical school. But by having mentors, by having people understand that our primary goal is to train primary care physicians, um, that in a way makes our applicant pool self-selecting. So we, and that's one of the reasons we produce so many primary care physicians. How long ago did you launch? 2004.
0: And how small were you then in terms of your first class? We had nine students. <laughs> nine students. Nine and students. How many did you graduate again last year? Uh, last year we graduated uh, 240, I believe. Nine to Somewhere 240. Like, yes. What was that process like, growing that
1: number? Well, um, we were very lucky in that we had um, a... Affiliation with a school called Manipal, which is depending upon what year it is, anywhere from the fifth to the seventh ranked, highest ranked medical school in India, and uh, they supported us both financially and with um, educational support, so that we were the first school in the Caribbean, I believe, to have a medical school campus. It was I use EC dollars when I. When I talk about the cost of the campus, of course, it sounds better, um, of about 160 million dollars, which is about 50 million U.S. dollars, um, that was built solely to be a medical school, and so that helped us with the process, as well as I like to say that a medical school campus will tell you about a school's dedication to medical education, but what's most important in medical education is medical school faculty because they're responsible for providing the education. And we were able to grow, but not grow without also growing the faculty and our resources, including laboratories and um, other supplemental medical uh, educational um, uh, support. So... um, The process was made easier by our relationship with Manipal, which is Kasturba Medical College. And by our growth was also made easier because we had a wealth of knowledge that helped us grow the school, as well as faculty resources from the United States as well as worldwide, um, that we were able to use to continue the growth and make the growth a seamless process.
0: No, of course, a big challenge of anyone graduating from school, medical school, law school, you name the school, is mounting student debt. Is it much cheaper to go to your school than it is to go to a school here in the States?
1: It is cheaper than the vast majority of schools in the United States. But there is, I mean, students, medical education is expensive. Uh, we, As I said, we do have significant scholarship programs but um students don't usually don't graduate with the amount of debt that they would have if they went to an american medical school especially if they went to an out of state medical school so as you probably know um state schools like for example university of colorado their costs for an out of state student so for a new yorker to go to university of colorado i think it's twice the tuition is twice the amount that it would be for a resident of colorado and that's significant debt i mean people can graduate with debt in close to $300,000. Uh, medical education at AUA is n- not that prohibitive. but you, What would you, you say? What is it's it? It's probably around 160000 $170,000, including tuition, room and board books, everything that, cost of attendance. Um, and um, we were approved for U.S. federal government student loans about two years ago. Before that, um, we um, provided our students with loans at actually a rate that was comparable to what the federal rate was. So i to say at that time we used to put our money where our mouth is because if we didn't have graduates and the graduates weren't successful, the chance of getting loans back would be diminished. Uh, but now we do have government student loans, and we were approved for that about two years ago.
0: Do you have to fight stigma at all that doctors trained
1: outside the U.S. are in some way inferior? Well, I think a couple of things happen. Yes, there is that stigma, especially with Caribbean schools, and sometimes for good reason, by the way, because there are some bad Caribbean schools and there are some good Caribbean schools. The other stigma is that we are a for-profit institution, and for-profit institutions come under a lot of criticism, and again, sometimes for very good reasons. Uh, it seems to me that the way to evaluate a school is not whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit. The way to evaluate a school is what kind of education it provides to its students. Um, And I like to say we're probably the only for-profit that doesn't make a profit, but we provide a quality education. Um, But there is that stigma, and um, what I think has mitigated that stigma is two things. One, When our students participate in clinical clerkships in hospitals, our third and fourth year of medical school is completed in hospitals that we affiliate with in the United States teaching hospitals. So when they see how our students perform at those teaching hospitals, they realize that they're quality students who are getting a quality education. And in fact, that's why many of them obtain residency positions in the hospitals where they were first clinical clerks. The second thing is, of course, that our graduates obtain residency positions, and when people see how they perform, they're more likely to continue to choose graduates from AUA to obtain residency positions at their hospitals. So I think we have mitigated that stigma to a great extent by the performance of our students
0: and our graduates. What areas would you say you are most concerned about when it comes to a loss of primary care physicians? Where do you think that this nation may suffer most? Clearly, we're dealing with a big opioid crisis right now, the drug epidemic, huge here in the States.
1: Yes, it is. And um, in fact, uh, our students have an opportunity to participate in providing um, care to uh, Eric Clapton's um, rehab center in Antigua Crossroads which is a world renowned um drug rehab center that experience helps our graduates deal with things like the opioid crisis i think that um the areas where it's most um significant is one in rural areas areas where uh west virginia which has uh, you know one of the highest rates of uh, opioid addiction in, in the country and in urban areas, and those are two areas where there is a lack of primary care physicians. So not only do you have the, the social and economic pro- problems that cause, as well as the health problems that cause opioid addiction, but you have a lack of resources for people to get treatment for that addiction or to get um, treatment prior to it becoming an addiction. It greatly increases the danger of opioid addiction when you don't have primary care physicians to be able to treat patients who are using opioids or may tend to overuse opioids.
0: What legislative or policy changes do you think would help to turn this situation around when it comes to primary care physicians?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. One is that there is a difference in... um, the amount of income that a primary care physician can earn as opposed to a cardiovascular surgeon, for example. So I think that the the uh, reimbursement to primary care physicians needs to be increased uh, because, as you said, people who graduate from medical school do have a tremendous debt, and that sometimes can force somebody to go into a field that might be more economically, uh, beneficial, but not necessarily the field where there's the greatest need or where a graduate may want to practice medicine. So I think that the economics of, uh, of the practice of medicine are important to look at and that there needs to be an increase in payment, not only for residents who go into primary care fields, but also for doc- doctors practicing, uh, medicine. And I think that, uh, There also needs to be more residency training positions for primary care, as well as for all fields. So, for example, no matter how many graduates you have of medical schools, if there are only 27,000 or so first-year residency positions, you're never going to be able to deal with this shortage of up to 130,000 physicians in 2030. So probably the most important thing that we should be doing from a legislative standpoint is trying to fund additional residency positions. Residency positions, with some limited exceptions, are funded at the 1996 level. So the number of residency positions has increased. Uh, The increase has been very small. And the need for more physicians is recognized universally. But nobody is funding additional residency positions, and without that funding, we're never going to deal with the physician shortage crisis.
0: Is there a particular success story that you would want to share with us about one of your graduates? There are many
1: of them, and I'm afraid if I choose one, <laughs> will be insulted. But we have graduates, for example, who have established um, clinics in areas in which there's a tremendous need worldwide for more physicians. We have graduates who have established clinics in Haiti, and we have graduates who have started a project now where they're funding... And they're going down to Puerto Rico to help with the health crisis that has been brought on by the last hurricanes and the rather poor response from the federal government. Is the U.S.
0: unique in having this issue with primary care physicians or other countries also dealing with this type of
1: slowdown? I think that the shortage of primary care physicians as well as the shortage of physicians in general is not unique to the United States. In fact... I just was in um Great Britain last week and uh met with um one of the medical schools there and their big issue is there is that they don't have enough physicians and that some of the Europe physicians from uh Europe um are going back to their home countries rather than remaining in Britain because of B And um but they're they're very much impacted by a shortage of primary care physicians and a shortage of physicians in general. And uh, they've just established, I think, I believe they've established a 1,000 new first-year medical school positions in Great Britain. India, it's the same issue. There's not enough physicians. And um, so it's really a worldwide phenomenon. That
0: said, do you think that we may face primary physician wars with one country competing a little bit more so to attract these people, people from, like, your school?
1: Yes, that's certainly a possibility. However, the United States has the resources to deal with that problem. And we have to, uh, as I said, we have to fund more residency positions. There should be more opportunities for students to go to medical school. Some countries are not in a position where they can do that. We are in a position where we have the resources to increase the number of primary care physicians and to increase the number of physicians in general. We just need to concentrate on
0: doing that. Neil Simon, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Neil Simon is the president and co-founder of the American University of Antigua College of Medicine. More info at auamed.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. My name is George Bodarki. Thank you so much for listening.